You're listening to Gypsit Between the Lines, where we have real discussions about real issues in public safety. Hey, I'm Melissa White, and today we are back with Mary Beth Nelson with the Georgia Center for Child Advocacy. Mary Beth, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I have been a forensic interviewer for almost 17 years, and I've been working with the Georgia Center for Child Advocacy for a little over 14 years and have loved being there and working with the kids and the detectives and defects workers over the years. Okay. We also have Jasmine Brown with us, and Jasmine is new to our team. We've had her for, what, a couple weeks? Yes. And so we're really excited. We're getting Jasmine into podcasts so we can take off with her. But Mary Beth, can you tell us a little bit about what forensic interviews are? Sure. So forensic interviews are usually video recorded. Um, In most states in the country at this point, forensic interviews are video recorded. And they are investigative interviews conducted with kids. They're developmentally appropriate, culturally sensitive, trauma-informed, so really kind of seeing where the child is and, you know, if they're able to sort of handle talking right now. But the, the idea is that when an allegation of usually child sexual abuse comes forward, a forensic interview is conducted in order to be able to let that child talk about what, if anything, has happened. We typically interview kids anywhere from ages three up to 17, maybe uh, about 17 years old, and also occasionally work with adults with disabilities if the detective requests that because they may be sort of functioning at a closer to, you know, developmentally, maybe closer to like a teenager or an adolescent. Right. Why is a forensic interview the best practice? So the idea is that we want to limit the number of times that someone is talking to a child and asking them what happened. I think if we think about our own personal lives and let's say we had something really hard happen, like uh, maybe we were robbed or we were victimized in some way. So when you first tell it, you have all of the details, you have a lot of emotion, you have a lot of information to share. But by the 20th time that someone asks you, you say something like, well, I was robbed in the parking lot and that's about it. Right. And so the more that we talk to kids, it does two things. If we are repeatedly talking to them, we are potentially re-traumatizing a kid and making them relive their experience over and over again. And also we are we may be messing up an investigation because we we're all human and we all have different ways of talking to people. Mm-hmm. And so the more people that talk to a kid, the more times they're asked question after question, the more likelihood that their responses may seem sort of inconsistent, which then may stall an investigation or, or end an investigation. Right. So a large part of our audience are patrol officers, the first to go to a scene of somebody maybe reporting a child abuse, sexual abuse. What should that patrol officer know when they first go to a call like that and they're the initial responder? Is there something they can do or what do they do? Sure. That's a great question. I think that the first thing they need to know is sort of know how their county operates. So there are, I believe, 
52 or 53 child advocacy centers around the state. And that's where a lot of times the forensic interviews are conducted. But every county is a little bit different. And so in order to best do your job as a responding officer, you need to know what happens once the investigation is open and what that process looks like. Right. For the most part, what happens is once it's assigned to a detective, then someone with specialized interview training, such as a forensic interviewer at the Child Advocacy Center, will be the one to talk to that child. As the responding officer, there's a few things I would recommend. One is gather as much information from the adults involved and not necessarily from the child. Get enough to make your report or to take the report from those who are involved. If there is a sense that you're concerned about the safety of that child and like maybe the adults that are standing there with that child, then you may need to ask some questions. So a couple of tips would be to separate the child from the adults, get on eye level with the child. I always joke when I'm talking to officers that you want to get close, but not like too close, not creepy close. Right. Um, But you want to get on eye level and you want to ask just some basic open-ended questions, like what happened, who was involved, but not, you don't want to introduce terms to the child, like you don't want to introduce any body part names or acts of like sex acts to the child. You don't want to introduce new terminology. You only want to just get the basic information you need and try to do it in a sort of a calm, open-ended manner with the child involved. And then the other piece is if it's on body cam, great. But if not, then make sure you are documenting exactly what the child said. So don't clean it up and make it technical, um, such as, you know, the child disclosed inappropriate touch by their father. You want to say the child said, daddy touched my TT. Right. And put that in quotes. Because sometimes that's what we see in like documentation looks inconsistent because of the adults involved, our interpretation of what the child said right? instead of what the child actually said. Okay. So basically just stick with exactly what the child said and don't try to make it like your typical police report. Exactly. And again, you know, if let's say you're responding to a school or you're responding to a hospital, you probably can get a lot of information from the adults that are involved that called the police. Um, and may not actually have to talk to the child. But if you do talk to the child, I think it's important to try to separate that child from other people and ask the child some open-ended questions. All right. What are the benefits of forensic interviewing as part of a case? Sure. So there's a uh, there's several benefits. One is that in Georgia, the interview can be played in court under the exceptions to the child hearsay laws. So usually, you know, hearsay can't be used in any sort of court proceedings or in the criminal justice process. But when it's a child under 16, that child's video can potentially be brought in and played in a trial. There's, of course, some rules around that. And the child is going to have to testify, most likely in these criminal trials. So the interview does not take the place of a child testifying. But as we know, cases sometimes can take months, years, lots of years to come to a trial. And a lot of time has passed and a lot of growing up has happened and a lot of maybe hopefully healing has happened. And so that child may look and act different 
than the way they presented at the beginning of an investigation. Right. A forensic interview is able to be video recorded. And so we're capturing what the child said exactly. So no one can interpret what the child said. It's on video. What the interviewer asked. So if we are not doing our job correctly, we can be held accountable for it. But then also it captures the child's nonverbal language. And maybe if the child is crying or if the child is, you know, has their head kind of tucked into their arm, it's capturing everything and not just relying on what's on paper. I have found that that's really helpful. The other piece is that the forensic interviews are conducted at the beginning of an investigation, generally. And so if the child says, well, I told my sister about what happened. Well, it's on video. The detective involved can go back and listen and watch the video, take notes, double check, like, what do I need to follow up on? And they can go and look for information that either corroborates or refutes the statement. So it's it's not just like led to make sure everybody goes to jail. It's right. also if there's some real problems with a statement that can be followed up on as well. And it's on video. So you don't have to keep asking that child the same questions. You can go back and watch and then do your investigation based on what they said. Okay. And so who actually does this forensic interview? So there are, as I had said, there's about 53 child advocacy centers around the state. And they have forensic interviewers employed there, generally. And those interviewers are trained to conduct forensic interviews. The interviewers at the Child Advocacy Center, they only conduct interviews at the request of investigators. So it could be defects workers and law enforcement, but very often it's the detectives request the interview. They assist the interviewer in the advocacy center with contacting the family, getting the appointments set up, and then um, the detective observes the interview as it's being conducted by the forensic interviewer at the advocacy center. So can anybody be a forensic interviewer? Is there a process to get that? Yeah. So there's a couple of things. There's a lot of interview training out there, but the most important thing to know is what does your child abuse protocol for your county say? So an example is in one county, the the child abuse protocol states that the detectives do the forensic interviews. They are trained and they conduct the forensic interviews. But another county may say that all children who have made allegations or there's an investigation of sexual abuse, severe physical abuse, or witness to violence, those children are to be brought to the advocacy center. So even if the detective who is investigating the case has interview training, has Mm -hmm. forensic interview training, if the protocol in the county says, take them to the advocacy center, then that's what needs to happen. Now, as far as who can be a forensic interviewer, I've seen forensic interviewers and like really good ones who are, have a law enforcement background, have a DFACS, you know, child protective services background, therapist background, uh, social worker background. So really, as long as you are operating within the child abuse protocol. Mm -hmm. So if the protocol says all forensic interviews are conducted by the advocacy center, then you'd have to be employed by the advocacy center. But that's the biggest thing is knowing what the protocol in that county says and then obtaining the appropriate training for forensic interviewing. What are the training resources in Georgia? 
So we have a fantastic training resource in Georgia. It's called Child First Georgia. And the Child First program is actually a forensic interview training program that's national, a national model with a statewide like train the trainer model. So they are in, don't quote me, I think over 20 states that Child First is in over 20 states. So they have statewide experts who use this model and train their law enforcement, forensic interviewers, uh, the investigative partners in this model of investigation and interviewing. So Child First Georgia is actually run by the Child Advocacy Center in Cherokee County, the Anna Crawford Children's Center. Amy Economopoulos, who is one of the most brilliant interviewers, I would say, in the state at least, runs the program. And um, there's several of us who are on faculty, including myself, and then a former forensic interviewer who's a therapist, a couple of prosecutors, and then another therapist. So we're all, we sort of team train, like people get to hear from all of us all week. It's a 40-hour training, and it is no-cost registration. It is grant-funded for professionals who investigate child abuse allegations. We are definitely targeting um, getting forensic interviewers in, Mm -hmm. so people who that that really is going to be their job. But it's also a really beneficial training for detectives and child protective service workers and prosecutors to be able to come and learn what the investigative process is and what the interview process looks like. It's just be beneficial for them in the long run. Yeah, because if you understand what a good forensic interview looks like, you also know how to use that for your investigation. And you also know kind of how it ends up playing out in the court process. And knowing what your role is, what the forensic interviewer's role is, that whole piece, it's covered in the Child First training. So how do they go about locating Child First and finding out when the next training is going to be offered? Sure. We tend to offer it three to four times a year. And so if you go to the Anna Crawford Children's Center website, which I do not have that memorized at the very moment. But if you Google Anna Crawford Children's Center, you go to their website, they have a tab for professional training. Okay. And you click on that tab and then you will see where you can register or fill out an application. We tend to have more applications than we have slots. Right. um, But we look at the criteria of Are you going to be a forensic interviewer based on your child abuse protocol in your county? Are you part of an investigative team investigating child abuse allegations? And then we try to fit as many of those folks into the training, you know, as we can accommodate. Usually it's there's one in the spring and then two and like one in the spring, one in the late summer and one in the early fall each year. All right. And we'll actually get that link address and have it provided with this podcast so that perfect everybody will be able to locate it without having to look too hard for it. So you talked about earlier, forensic interviews kind of alleviates the need to question that child over and over and over again. So what are the problems that come up with that? There, um, There's a lot of problems that can come up with that. We recognize that in child abuse allegations and investigations, there are going to be people who talk to the child. So let's say a child 
says something to their mom about a family member touching them, the mom is going to ask some questions because they're the mom and they're trying to figure out what is happening. So they will ask some questions. Um, But then once mom or whoever reports it, we want to limit the number of times that different professionals are asking the child over and over again. Back in the 1980s, there were some very high profile child abuse investigations involving daycares. So we're talking about kids who were ages like 18 months to like three, four, five year olds, where the allegations were really very serious and very scary. But what we found was there were some problems in the way the investigations were conducted and the way the interviews were conducted that made it hard to figure out what was real and what was fantasy. So after those high profile cases um, around the country actually happened, more research began to be focused on how do we reduce the likelihood that we are feeding a child information that is not actually from their experience. Right. So what the research found is that really, really young children it is possible to sort of introduce concepts and for them to begin to talk about them as if they happened when they did it. So there's some good research that shows that that is possible. But what we know in the way that we work with partners today is that while it's possible, the links to which they had to go to in those research settings are generally not what happens um, in our child abuse investigations now. So we really want to pay attention to how many times different people are asking questions, what types of questions are they asking, and we really want to try to save the full in-depth questioning to one, you know, basically, hopefully, about one interview that really goes into depth. How do forensic interviewers keep from having bias or maybe leading the victim? I think that's a really good question. And I think we all try very hard to remain neutral. So oftentimes the way the process works is that when we receive a request for a forensic interview at an advocacy center, we get some information about what are the concerns? Like, so what has the child said so far? And maybe who has the child talked to? But what one of the things we do is we think about Before we go into an interview with a child, what else could this be? So an example would be maybe a child has made statements about some touches to her private parts, but the child is three. And so three-year-olds are often potty training. And we may think about that maybe it's potty training. It might be sexual abuse. It might be potty training. It might be bathing. And so we're trying to gather information to sort of get a clearer picture of what actually is this. Right. We work very hard to go into interviews recognizing that we don't know. We don't know if something happened. We don't know if something didn't happen. And so we're very open and just letting that child lead us versus us leading the child. So in your agency, your center, do you have someone watch one of your interviews to see how you did or like coaching and that kind of thing? So different, different agencies are set up differently. We at the Georgia Center really, we're just really lucky because we have a pretty large staff. 
of some very skilled and experienced interviewers. So if we hire a new interviewer, they are going to be watched and observed and given feedback sort of along the way until they feel competent and confident in their ability. But as I said, we're we're super fortunate. And I think there's a lot of advocacy centers around the state that have the staffing to be able to ease a new interviewer in. But there are some centers that they're just not able to do that. Maybe their one forensic interviewer resigned for whatever reason, and they've hired a new one. And that's the sole interviewer in the agency. What we have around the state, which is just wonderful, is a process called peer review. And it's where different centers tend to get together once a month, quarterly, you know, depending on what each group has decided for themselves. But they get together and they review, each group reviews forensic interviews and gives very critical feedback about um, what went right, uh, what, what was challenging, and what, where could we learn for future interviews. So um, we have the peer review process that is, I think, very helpful in, in the state. We also have a lot of really experienced interviewers around the state that the new interviewers tend to know that they can call on them, right? right. Uh, myself and many other really, really skilled interviewers um, pretty freely hand out our phone numbers <laughs> and email addresses. So if someone has a crazy case that they either just finished the interview or they're about to do the interview, Mm -hmm. they can reach out and get support from those of us who just have had a lot of experience over the years. That's really good, though. I mean, especially if you have a passion for that and you want to do the best that you can do. I think most of us do in in the jobs that we do. So I I could see that benefit of just having somebody to kind of give you that feedback to say, hey, you're doing a great job or here's some things you could do just a little better. Absolutely. I mean, I think that Georgia is a state that is just very, we're very fortunate because I can think of so many interviewers who have been in this for a long, long time and who have an incredible amount of knowledge and who are willing to share that with with new interviewers. And so we just we just have an incredible network, in my opinion, of being able to call on each other for for help and support and some guidance. Right. That's great. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, we've talked about child advocacy centers and we've said that several times. Um, Can you just kind of tell them what that really is? I'm assuming it's a physical place. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. So child advocacy centers were started back in the 80s, where again, we before we had child advocacy centers and what we call multidisciplinary teams or MDTs, what we had was all these different people involved in an investigation, and they were not talking to one another. So everyone was talking to the kid. If you needed information, you went to the kid and you got it. And so, again, there were repeated questions of this of a child who may struggle with telling it over and over again. And it, yeah, it may be traumatizing. And so what the advocacy centers were created for was to help with coordinating the team, coordinating those who are involved in an investigation to make sure that the needs of the child and the family are being met during the investigation. Advocacy centers often offer forensic interviews for the the investigators and team in their county. 
or their judicial circuit. They also have many advocacy centers offer medical exams on site. If they don't offer the medical exams, they know who the expert is in the community and Mm -hmm. they coordinate their services. So an example is Georgia Center doesn't offer medical exams because we are down the street from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Children's Healthcare is like the expert in forensic medical exams, you know, and so we coordinate to make sure the kids we see are going to get the follow-up medical treatment if they need it at Children's Healthcare. So medical exams, therapy is also offered at a lot of advocacy centers. And again, if it's not offered on site, then the advocacy center knows the therapists that are really good and who know how to treat abuse victims and will coordinate and make sure that those kids and families are connected to them. And then the other piece is that we, like I said, we coordinate the investigators. So we have what we call MDT meetings. Those are meetings that happen, depends on the community and the advocacy center, but they tend to happen once or twice a month. And that's when the cases of the child abuse victims and investigations that came through the advocacy center are staffed with the team. The team includes the detectives, prosecutors, sometimes school social workers, the medical professionals, the forensic interviewers, juvenile court representatives. I'm sure I'm forgetting some people, um, some team members, sometimes victim witness. So the advocates in the county. So everyone comes together to share information as allowed by Georgia statute mm-hmm. on child abuse investigations. And the goal is making sure that we're all on the same page about what's happened so far and what else needs to happen for this kid and family. And that sometimes what we find is that maybe the advocacy center received one bit of information, but then the prosecutors received something different. Right. and. We need to be on the same page about what's happening to address the the needs. Usually our multidisciplinary teams address safety. They address the therapeutic needs of the child. So has that child been connected to therapy? Are they able to go? You know, those types of things. The medical needs of the child. So do they need a medical exam? Have they received the medical exam? Do we need to connect and make sure that that happens? And then sometimes offender accountability. So did this child make a credible outcry? And does the investigation corroborate the child's statement? And does someone need to be held accountable? Right. So we're looking at all of those pieces in the in the multidisciplinary team meetings. Basically, everyone's just working together to make sure that no stone is left unturned and that you know exactly what's going on with that child. Yes. Exactly. And making sure that children aren't falling through the cracks. We have amazing caregivers of kids in these situations who are doing their very best to protect the child. But sometimes we have caregivers who are not as protective. And maybe they presented to the advocacy center as very protective. And maybe they presented to DFACS, another strong partner in the team. They presented to DFACS as very protective. But when they went and talked to the district attorney's office, something different came out. Right. And we need to kind of regroup and figure out, is this child really safe? And what what are the next steps that need to happen to ensure their safety? Can you kind of explain to us the difference between a forensic interviewer, um, an advocate, and a therapist? 
Yes. So those are all different roles that work with child victims and their families. The forensic interviewer's job is really to just gather the information from the child in a neutral, developmentally appropriate, very sensitive way. And that really should be their role. Then there is the advocate that is really helping to assess the needs of the child and family, often by working with the caregiver Mm -hmm. to figure out, you know, are they safe where they're living? Are they, you know, if the alleged offender is the primary breadwinner, what's the other caregiver going to do to be able to put food on the table and addressing those basic needs to help with making sure that that child's going to be protected and supported. And then the therapist is someone who works directly with the child to process their trauma and to help with healing their their trauma. They're very kind of different roles. Mm-hmm. And particularly the interviewer and the therapist role should not be the same person. That takes away the neutrality of the interviewer if they have a therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. Because that therapeutic relationship isn't supposed to be neutral. Right. You know, it's supposed to be supportive and, you know, and work with them over a period of time. Many teams tend to have separate people for each of those roles. Occasionally, you may, as the interviewer, have to just sort of help with like giving a parent the number to the, you know, and the contact information to the domestic violence shelter or helping to connect to services. Right. But in a... In a perfect setting, you have different people for the different roles. Okay, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about case reviews. What is a case review? That's actually just sort of a a fancy term for the multidisciplinary team meeting. So the case reviews are where we, the meeting that we have, where we discuss the cases of all of the kids that have come through the center during a certain period of time and making sure all of those needs are met. Some counties refer to them as MDT meetings. Some refer to it as case review. Okay. So that just gets everybody up to speed that these are interchangeable terms or whatever. All right. Basically, everything we've talked about so far is just dealing in general with child abuse. Not specific. It's physical. Yes. So... Typically, the forensic interview component comes into play when we are looking at issues of child abuse that are pretty severe. So all sexual abuse tends to be coordinated and addressed through advocacy centers. Severe physical abuse often is coordinated and addressed through the advocacy center as well. Let's say someone gives a child a spanking and they have, a, you know, a bruise or something on their bottom mm-hmm. that may not rise to the level of what is going to be investigated by the team in the child advocacy model. But let's say the child was burned or pretty severely beaten. That child may come to the center for services and for coordination. Children who are witness to violence. So sometimes we have kids who are present during a homicide. Those kids are often, they come through those centers for forensic interviews and for services and okay. coordination. All right. So it's not necessarily that they were abused. It was that they witnessed something traumatic. Yes, it can be that they witnessed something traumatic. What we know is when kids are present, even during domestic violence situations and clearly like homicides and sexual assaults, A, it's really important for law enforcement and defects to know what they saw mm-hmm. and to understand kind of where they were. And we need to address whether or not they were traumatized by what they saw and experienced by being there. Right. 
Thanks for listening to Gypstick Between the Lines. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, email us at learn at gpstc.org. Thank you.